Well, it is wonderful to see you this morning on this fourth Sunday of this Easter season, and especially those of you who are guests because of graduation weekend, uh, welcome. It is good to have you here, and those of you with us online. In this Easter season, we've been looking together at passages from the book of Revelation, and I would invite you to turn to that last book in the Bible again with me this morning. This morning, we find ourselves in Revelation, the eighth chapter, Revelation chapter 8, verses 1 through 5, and if you're with us and able this morning, I would invite you to stand with me in honor of the Lord's Word. Revelation chapter 8, verses 1 through 5. Then when the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. Another angel came and stood at the altar, and he was given, and he held a gold bowl for burning incense. He was given a large amount of incense in order to offer it on behalf of the prayers of all the saints on the gold altar in front of the throne. The smoke of the incense offered for the prayers of the saints rose up before God from the angel's hand. And then the angel took the incense container and filled it with fire from the altar, and he threw it down to earth. And there were thunder, voices, lightning, and an earthquake. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated this morning. I'd invite you, if you have a Bible, to keep it open to Revelation. I want to go back just a little bit and talk about where we have been. We started by thinking, first of all, about the fourth chapter of Revelation, which begins this major vision that carries all the way through the end of the book of Revelation. In chapter 4, John, uh, the revelator, in exile in Patmos, in a moment where there's a bit of a crisis going on in the church, he just wrote seven letters to the churches, and five of them weren't very good. Um, it's kind of a moment of exile and upheaval, but in the midst of that, he, he steps through a door, Again, kind of like Lucy stepping through the wardrobe into Narnia. He steps through a door, and, and in there, I'm going to borrow Jim's stool for a minute. He comes into the throne room, and there in the middle of the throne room is one seated on the throne. 24 elders, the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 apostles, the whole church, four creatures all of crea that represent all of creation, all of creation gathered around the throne not panicking, not in fear, not scurrying to and fro, but worshiping the one who is seated on the throne. Again, it's why we're here this morning. In part, because a few of you need to be reminded, you are not the center of the universe. But we're here today to be reminded there is one who is seated on the throne at the center of all things. And we are participants in the story that that one who is seated on the throne is writing, it is not that we have added that one to our story, but that we are caught up in the great redemptive story that God is writing. When we move to the fifth chapter, we discover there is a scroll in the hand of the one who is seated on the throne, but it has seven seals and it can't be opened up. As we've talked about, we will run into these symbols every once in a while. In the Wednesday night class, I was joking with them this week that when we come to symbols, every time I try to interpret one of them, I want to kind of give it a grade. I want to say, I'm going to give this one a C plus. I'm kind of mostly certain that I'm talking about the right thing here. This one I want to give an A. That scroll in the hand of the one seated on the throne is the scroll of history 
And the question that the revelator asks and then weeps about is, who can get history to go the way that God wants it to go? Who can bring all things to the glorious conclusion that God desires for the creation to have? And as we look around with the revelator, we recognize, oh, there is no one who can get this to go the right way. And again, part of the reason we're here this morning is to confess that there is, there is no politician, there is no political party, there is no, there's no economic strategy, there is no national security, there is nothing in all creation of our own that can bring history to its glorious conclusion. And so we weep, what's going to happen? But the elder says to the revelator, don't weep, for there is one who is worthy. For the lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered and he can open the seals and unroll the scroll. So important, this is on the final. He hears lion, but then he sees lamb. A lamb that was slain. Christ, the embodiment, the, the full revelation of God's self-giving love. Christ is worthy to open the scroll and to bring all things to the glorious conclusion. And so now worship breaks out in chapter 5, not just to the one seated on the throne, but to the Lamb who is worthy of all glory and honor and praise. Last week we looked at chapter, chapter 6 and 7. In chapter 6, the scroll begins to open. And if you weren't with us last week, the, the main question, I would argue, of chapter 6 and 7, here is the question. It actually is the last question, or the last verse of chapter 6, who can stand? And the question of chapter 6 and 7 is this, where do you find your security? Where is your hope found? Is your hope found in your bank account? Is your hope found in your health? Is your hope found in the nation you are a part of? Is your hope found in military might or security? Where, like, where is your hope found? Because when chapter 6 opens, the seals begin to open, and the first four open, and these four horsemen jump out. Reminders that there are always folks at the edges that are hard to control. The second one reminds us there's always kind of unsettledness within that is hard to control. The third one reminds us of this tenuous balance that we have between us and nature. It's just going to take one good drought for things that really be in chaos. And the fourth one, the one I don't like after these last two or three years, is a reminder of disease and pandemic and how our myth of control is sometimes broken by that which we cannot control. And so the seals are a reminder as the empire tries to tell us, find your security, find your hope in me. Those horsemen remind us, oh, sometimes the places we think are secure are not. The fifth seal opens up in chapter 7, and here's the answer to the question, right? Who can stand? The, the fifth seal opens up, and, and we see the saints beneath the altar crying out to God, how long, O Lord? And, and the sixth seal opens up, and all sorts of chaos and all sorts of judgment becomes on earth, like, like hailstorms in the midst of a graduation ceremony, judgment upon this class and whatever has happened in their lives. And people scurry, wondering where they're going to find protection and care. Who can stand in the midst of it? Chapter 7 is the answer. Again, John hears 144,000, the embodiment of God's people, the 12 tribes of Israel, 
who have been redeemed and brought through all of this challenge and brokenness. But then he looks again and he sees you and me, a people that no one can count. From every tribe and nation and language. And this is the important thing. A people who are able to stand because their hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. They have been sealed, marked. Our lives marked by the life of the Lamb, reflecting the life of the Lamb. And now we get to chapter 8 and 9. I have an image for us this morning of chapter 8 and 9. We don't have time to read all of chapter 8 and 9, so I'm going to tell you what chapter 8 and 9 have, says, and then you can read it on your own. We get the seventh seal opening up, and it's as though we should think, oh, this is it, right? This is the end of it. Come on, bring it on. Bring the end and bring the new creation. But sort of typical of Revelation, we get a delay in the action. And now for something completely different. We go from seals to trumpets. And suddenly we get these seven trumpeters. Now I could be wrong about this. I'm going to give this one a B minus. But I would say the majority of scholars that I trust on this one would say that what's happening in chapters 8 and 9 is that the revelator is using these seven trumpets and taking two important stories from the Old Testament and kind of mixing them together to give imagery again, and here's the key question. Last week, the question was, where do you find security? The question this week is, what will ultimately bring repentance and change? What actually will change our lives? And so in chapter 7, the the trumpets begin to blow, and, and one of the stories that the revelator seems to be borrowing from is the story of Joshua and Jericho. Do you remember that? People of God up against Jericho being oppressed, but they can't really overcome it because the walls are too high and too big. And so they have a worship service and they march around it praying seven times. I love the VeggieTale version of it. Milkshakes being thrown on their heads. Um, They march around seven times and they blow the trumpets and the walls crumble down. Like that, the revelator pictures these trumpets being blasted from the throne room of God and all of the places of security again crumbling down. But the other story that the revelator is borrowing, and it's not my fault, is the story of Exodus. Read it this week. Every single one of the plagues that comes out of the blast of the trumpets is a reminder of one of the plagues that Moses brought on Pharaoh back in the Exodus story. The first four are about water turning to blood and about darkness and hail. And and then when we get to the fifth trumpet, a fascinating thing happens. And again, I could be wrong about this one. I'll give it another B minus. But an angel comes and opens the door of the abyss. Here's what I think the revelator is trying to tell us. Earlier in chapter 5, we got to go through the door and see all of creations gathered around the one on the throne and all the goodness and beauty and mercy and and glory that is there. But now the door to another chamber is opened and all sorts of ugly things crawl out of it. Locusts and brokenness. I think it is a picture of the way that human sin so often goes to places and opens up things in our lives 
that bring things into the world, like some of the things that we see each night on the news and read about, despicable, violent, oppressive, wicked, evil things unleashed upon the creation. And in that fifth and sixth seal, all of that breaks in. Now, a kind of interesting thing. If we go back to the seals for a moment, when the seals are open, God says, here's what you're allowed to do. You're allowed to destroy a quarter of all things, one-fourth. Here, as the trumpets begin to blow, God says, now you can destroy a third of all things. Now, again, I could be wrong here, but I don't think what the revelator means is, well, you took care of 25%, now let's add 33% to that, and so now we'll destroy 58% of all things. But that what it seems is happening is as the seals open up, there is this judgment that is not everything, but is enough to try to get our attention. But clearly things haven't changed much. And so as the trumpets blow, it's as though God turns the volume up a little and says, let's go to a third. But now as a third of all things begin to fall apart, here's the question. Do I have your attention now? Much like the Exodus story. Are you done, Pharaoh? Do you want to repent now? And what happens back in the Exodus story? Every time one of these plagues happens, Pharaoh repents for about half a minute, and then he's back to being Pharaoh with a hardened heart. And here's what I want you to see in chapters 8 and 9. Read all the way to the end of chapter 9. All these horrible things happen. A third of all things have been broken, and and it should grab our attention. But you know what happens at the end of chapter 9? Nobody repents. Now you're not excited about that. It's fascinating. Can you imagine a world in which everybody's lives are falling apart and things are kind of coming unraveled and everybody just does what they want to do anyway? Crazy. I think it's instructive let me just read you one quote from a, one of my favorite theologians, a guy named Justo Gonzalez. He says, this is a lesson that the church has not always heeded. Too often we have thought that we can scare people into believing, or at least into being obedient to God. Some even use the book of Revelation for that purpose. But what Revelation, in fact, says is that no matter how dire God's warnings those who choose not to believe will remain adamant in their disobedience. I don't want to ruin it, but, but come next week. Because there will be another shift in the book of Revelation. All these scary things happen and no change takes place. And so there's going to be a shift in the book that moves towards the formation of a people who become reflections of the Lamb. Again, I don't want to ruin it for you. But when those people become a reflection of the Lamb, everything changes. Maybe that's a good word to some of us who are good at, <laughs> who've owned gold-plated bullhorns all of our life. And we're convinced the best way to get people in is to, to scare them or even to use this book as a way Perhaps to get seventh grade kids at camp to the altar. Anybody want to testify? Let's pass the microphone around. 
Perhaps it's a reminder that what draws us close to God ultimately is not the fear of God, but the love of God shed abroad in our hearts. But now let's get to the sermon. So we looked at Revelation 8, 1 through 5. And what I find so fascinating about these five verses is the seals are being undone and all this chaos is happening and we're about to get all these trumpets. But it's so fascinating for the revelator. We have a break in the action. A half hour break of silence. In which the prayers of the saints are offered up to the one who is seated on the throne. And I love the image They're put in a a censer. They're put in a bowl. And incense is added to purify them, to make them smell good. Part of me loves that. It means that I don't have to be super careful about the prayers I offer to God. He'll fix them. The prayers are purified by incense. And then the fire is added from the altar. And then, as Eugene Peterson says, they're thrown back down to earth in a kind of reversed thunder. And here's what's so important, what I want you to get this morning. All of the action that then takes place in the redemption of creation happens not just simply because God is willing or acting, but it's happening because the prayers of the saints are being mixed with the power of God and are being thrown back to earth to make a difference. If you don't get anything else out this morning, the mystery to me of God and of What I think the book of Revelation is trying to teach us is that we can have confidence that the lion of the tribe of Judah, the lamb that was slain, can bring all things to God's glorious conclusion. But here's the mystery. We can have confidence in the sovereign love of God to bring all things to God's purposes, but God will not do that without us and without our participation. And in this text, without our prayers energizing that work. If we think back to Exodus again, in the same way that in the Exodus story, the redemptive activity of God began with the people crying out for God to move. And God hears their cries and moves So too, in the imagination of the revelator, it is the cries, the prayers of the saints that are brought towards God that that activate the activity and purposes of God in the redemption of all creation. I want to reflect on that with you for just a few minutes. For if there is an area of our life that I think reveals an awful lot of our theology... And between you and me, I I pay attention to this a lot as we worship together. I think that our prayer and the way that we think about prayer and the way that we pray reveals a lot about what we think and believe in our hearts theologically. So I'm going to be a little bit vulnerable with you this morning. I could be wrong about this, but in my own journey, both in trying to understand the mystery of God and the work of God in the world. And in thinking about the scripture and and really in experiencing now 50-something years in relationship with God, I have come to a place where I have rejected the idea that God is deterministic. 
and that God determines all things. Now, I know that, that I have some brothers and sisters in Christ who would disagree with me on that, and, and I'm not going to unfriend them on Facebook. But especially in, in this Wesleyan tradition, we are a people, for example, who, who do not believe that God, before the foundations of the earth, predestined some people to be saved and others not. We actually believe in this thing called prevenient grace. We believe that grace has been extended to all people, which makes it possible for all to enter into relationship with Christ. The, the atonement of Christ was not limited to those for whom God chose it for. The atonement of Christ is good for all to come and to be participants in the life-giving, redemptive life of God. But beyond that, I, I don't believe that the things that happen in our lives are predetermined by God. That's why I, I promise you, I will never say this to you. As we journey together and difficult things happen in all, our, all of our lives, but when difficult things happen in your life, I promise you, I, I'll come alongside you and I will not say, well, we know everything happens for a reason. It always bothers me when people say that to me when I'm in suffering. I love them and smile, but I want to punch them in the nose. It's not helpful for me. Because be between you and me, I really struggle with the idea today as we look at just the horrors going on in Ukraine, for example. That somehow the purposes and mission of God cannot be fulfilled without this unbelievable, violent, horrible, messy, sinful destruction. And by the way, when we think that, then we excuse the forces that are actually making that happen. And so I, I don't pray, for example, God, you already know what you're going to do, and so help me be okay with it. Which means then that in my own journey, I've had to grow comfortable with, for lack of a better term, a kind of openness on the part of God. Traditionally in philosophy, there's kind of four omnis that we sometimes use to think about God. That God is omnipotent, he's all-powerful, he's omniscient, he knows everything, he's omnipresent, he's everywhere, and he's omnibenevolent, he's all-loving. I will say, and will affirm with you over and over again, those last two omnis, that God is omnipresent and omnibenevolent, yes, all day long, for eternity, God is here and God is love. But when it comes to God's omnipotence, I don't know that I would say there's something God can't do, but I will say this, that somehow what's revealed to us in the creation story is that God has created us in the image of God in such a unique way and given us freedom that I think I would affirm that there are some things that God won't do. Every once in a while, there are some things I wish God would do in the life of my children. Which is fine, because my parents have wished there were some things God would do in my life. I just simply don't believe God will force anybody in this room, or watching online, or any person we encounter, God will not force any of them to serve him and love him. You, you've been given freedom. 
And that, in some sense, has limited how God operates and acts, which means then oftentimes we have to invite God in to operate and to act in our lives. This is the trickier one. I don't always know what to do with God's knowledge. Now again, you and I can argue with each other, and let's not unfriend each other. But I am fascinated with the ways in which sometimes Israel imagines God's operation. For example, in the Noah story, we get to this horrible moment of human evilness, and God, the text says, and God, God's, God was grieved that he had made humankind. So it's not a sense of which God says, well, I knew it was going to get here. It's about time you got as evil as I thought you would be. But it's this genuine shock at what in the world? I've picked on this story before, but I love when Moses is on the mountain with God and Aaron and the people are building a golden calf. And God says, by the way, and this is such a good Mother's Day moment, God says to Moses, your people, right? (laughs) Your children, um, your people are wicked. They have built a golden calf. And here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to smite them, and then I'm going, to build my, I'm going to build my kingdom, my deliverance through you. And Moses says to God, God, you can't do that. Like, you can't just drag people out in the wilderness and kill them. They'll talk bad about you for centuries, God. <laughs> and by the way, you're God. Yahweh, Yahweh, full of steadfast love and mercy. And again, I love the text. It's almost as though God goes, oh, yeah. Ah, I hate that I'm full of steadfast love and mercy. I don't know what to do with all of that. But there is a kind of mystery in God's relatedness to us that I think is very genuine. I don't know what that means about God in the future. I just know that when I encounter difficulty and challenge, that what I am praying to God is genuine. Even as I think about the journey with my dad's passing a couple of years ago, as we were praying, I wasn't praying, God, you already know what you're going to do or not do, so help me be okay with that. But a genuine God, this is how we would love for you to act. But you're God, right? And there's two things there. I know that I can't go so far in that to just be left with deism where we're on our own. For texts like this invite us to realize that God is active and at work in our lives. And I also know that I can't just create a formula where I can say, the problem was we just did, not enough of you prayed and we didn't pray long enough. God had the stopwatch going and we just fell short or he would have acted. For that's certainly not how God acts in relationship of love to us as well. And so I have to leave a whole gap for God's relatedness and mystery there. But I am convinced that we are a people who are called to be in genuine relationship with God, calling out to God, lamenting, inviting God into the circumstances of our life in the ways that God chooses to operate and act in our lives. But here's the last thing. In this text then, what is so powerful is that when the people pray, oh God, do something to make things right. Set things right. Bring justice in your world. Take this broken world that breaks your heart and turn it towards you. Fix relationships. Fix this broken empire versus these broken people. Make all of that new and they cry out in that way. They get a little purification, but they also get activity. 
that there is something about when our prayers match with the heartbeat of God, that we tap into something so resonant in God's heart that powerful things begin to happen. And I don't know how to illustrate that other than to say on a Mother's Day like this. This week was Sophie and Jonah's birthdays. Joe turned 23, Sophie 20. We don't have any teenagers left in our house. I can't decide whether to lament that or rejoice in that. Very confused. But I can say as a parent, when my kids come and just want to sit in my office and talk, there's just something really wonderful about that, right? And I do think there's an aspect of prayer that is just simply communication with God and a practicing of God's presence in our lives. Absolutely nothing wrong with that. Beautiful, important. I do think there's an aspect of prayer where we just ask God for things. And by the way, my kids ask for stuff. It's usually financial. And more often than not, when they ask for things, if we can do it, we do. Every once in a while, if we think, oh, this is one they should do on their own, we don't. But I will tell you this, when our kids are finding that grain of the universe that is the heartbeat of God, and you see in them the desire to do the things that not only glorify God, but bring beauty and goodness and missional aspects to their life. Do you know what I'm talking about? Like that time, that moment where you see the the flame of the Spirit in their eye and heart, and they're wanting, I will mortgage whatever it takes to encourage that. Amen? Oh. And if we who are broken know how to do that, how much more? Is this text inviting us to recognize that when our heart beats with the heart of God and our prayers beat with the heart of God, the power of God is unleashed in reversed forms of thunder that begin to make all things new. And who knows what God will do when our prayers resonate with that heartbeat of God. This morning, as we close, I... You probably noticed, those of you who are regulars with us, that we, we didn't pray earlier. That was on purpose. For I wanted us to end in a time of prayer. There's at least a half hour break, although we're only going to take 13 minutes because you have reservations for Mother's Day. But there is silence in the throne room of God. to hear the petitions and cries of the people in this room and connected with us online today. And I want to invite us to to spend several minutes in prayer. And there are several things I, I would love for us to pray for. This morning out in the atrium, there's a chance to celebrate both Noah and Pastor Carly, who I think is going to come through a back door here in just a minute. And I'm going to mess up the worship team. But I'd love Noah for you and Carly. Noah and Carly got ordained a couple of weeks ago. Thanks be to God. And I'd love for you as their church family to bless them and empower them as well. And so in just a moment, Noah, if you'll come to this altar. And Carly, 
if you'll come out, come to this altar. Three of our own, Rachel Berry, uh, Carly Berggren, Allison Wolf, they're headed this week to go to the Utah project that we have been raising money and helping support, and they're going to spend the summer there. I would love for us to get a chance to bless them, and I haven't asked them because they probably would have said no, but they're going to come to this altar right here, and I want to pray a blessing upon them as well. We want to pray for uh, the Edelman's daughter, uh, for Jana Pyle's mother still. We want to pray for the Dunn family and the Condon family. Alice Dunn passed away this week. Gary Condon passed away. And of course, this morning, I know you've been blessed by the hail and fire from heaven, but I would love for some of you who've just graduated for us to get a chance to pray with you too. And I know that there are people in this room have burdens to offer to God. God desperately wants you to invite God to be active in your life. I don't know how God will act, but I believe that when we invite God to act in our lives, God is faithful and acts in our lives. And I know some of you need that today. But I would also love for us as a church to hear this text this morning to say, how do we begin to resonate with the heart of God? And to cry out that this brokenness that we see, not just in our world, but that we see in our neighborhoods, that we see in our homes, this brokenness that God would come and heal it. And I am convinced that when our hearts resonate with the heartbeat of God, unbelievable things happen. For I trust in Jesus today. I trust that he is able to bring all things to his glorious conclusion. And here's the thing, he will not do that without us. And so I'd invite you to come and pray this morning. For tis so sweet to trust in Jesus just to far left, you're far right. If you'd like somebody to pray with you this morning and anoint you, please come to that altar. Let's sing one more verse together. So
Almighty God, we offer our prayers up to you this morning as, as the fresh incense that pleases you and that invites you in the ways that you will to work in our lives and in your world. I pray for those who've come for anointing this morning. You know their situations. You know, you know the needs that they represent or that they have. And we come this morning inviting you to come and heal, to make things new. But we also come this morning not determining how you will do that but we are asking you to work in ways that we can see, recognize, and give glory to you. Be glorified in their lives today. Be glorified in their sufferings and in their healings. Bless today. May your spirit be upon them. God, thanks for these sweet girls who are ready to go to Utah and spend the summer dreaming, imagining, helping, assisting, blessing this new work. We're super proud of them. God, I pray that you would use them in really powerful ways. I pray you would give them eyes to see things and see people and opportunities that they wouldn't normally see. I pray you'd do something in them this summer too that you would bless them and form them and shape them. May this be a summer where they not just serve in one location, but where you begin to speak dreams and hopes for their whole life and for the ways that their life might be missional and caught up in your purposes. So bless and empower. We pray for grads here today and their families. I pray not just in a ceremony they'll never forget, but in days and months and years of preparation that you would now use that to make them even more significant and make their lives blessed and formed and shaped missionally for your purposes. Bless them today. God, thanks for Noah, his love for you. Thanks for his following um, the call that you've placed upon his life for the giftedness that you've given him to pursue that call. And so with the church that has already blessed him, we invite you to bless his life and ministry today. Help us to be the church that he needs right now um, to give him such a positive sense, not that ministry is easy, but there is something so sweet about trusting in you and serving you today. God, thanks for Carly, for their family. God, thanks for her giftedness and for her love for you. Thanks for her, her seminary degree she just finished and for all of the ways you've just been confirming this call upon her life in recent days. We thank you for the way that you will use her here at College Church and in this community but we also know we will be home base for a mission and ministry that you've given her far beyond these walls. 
And so give her your wisdom and your guidance. And, and most of all, may her heart beat with yours. And may the reversed thunder of your activity flow through her and bring change in the world. And so we give you thanks for her today and pray your blessing upon her. And God, I pray for this church and for Middleton and folks online today with needs. What a difficult time we live in, but what a time of opportunity you've given us as well. And so purify uh, our prayers with your spirit and teach us to pray rightly what it means to say thy kingdom come and thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And as we learn to pray that, may we see your work and your hand through us. And so teach us to pray as you taught disciples to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come and thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Amen. Would you stand with me? Let's sing together. How great the chasm that lay between us. High the mountain I could not climb in desperation I turned to heaven spoke your name into the night the darkness your loving kindness tore through the shadows
God's people said, amen. 
Oh, we got to get to brunch. But real quickly, there's lots of reasons that I'm, I'm incredibly thankful to get to be your pastor. But there are three things this morning that, I was, that are so cool. First of all, for those of you who are graduating, thanks for letting us be part of your life for a little bit. And it's so cool that we get to either keep you and watch you grow up and you get to serve with the gifts that God has given you, this congregation, that would be great. We'll take you. It's also great that we get to send you and take credit for all the good things that happen in your life. It's so good. Secondly, it's such a blessing to lean into a heritage that this church has had. And so there are lots of guests here this morning, but I want to say Ketchums, good to see you. Thank you for being here this morning. Rices, here in the front row. So good to have you here this morning. What a legacy of faithfulness that you get to inherit. Um, and then third, it's so much fun to get to pastor you. For I know that if you've listened well this morning, God is teaching us together how to have our heart beat with his. And as we go from this place, our prayers are not just given up in this room, but as we go from this place and we see the needs in our world, we offer those prayers to God knowing that he is faithful. And that's why this benediction's for us this morning. And now, unto him, who by that reversed thunder power at work within us, that spirit that's able to do immeasurably more than all we could ever ask or imagine to him, be glory in us, the people he calls his church, his people, his children. And most of all, in his son, the lamb, Jesus Christ, our savior, now and for all generations. And God's people said, amen. Amen. Go in his peace. Happy Mother's Day to you.